Now, our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 1 and the two probably most powerful verses in the entire book of Romans because they really do, in capsule form, reveal the themes that Paul will develop throughout the rest of the gospel. That is why those students and biblical scholars that study this believe these are two critical verses, Romans 1, 16 to 17. You'll notice it begins with the conjunction for, and that really is connected to Paul saying, I really want to go to Rome and preach, and that really connects us to that. And I just want to point out some things here as we go through this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So there we have the noun gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. There we have the noun salvation. To everyone who believes, there we have a verb, believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God, righteousness, there's another key noun, is revealed from faith to faith. Now I want to pause here because that prepositional phrase from faith to faith doesn't do justice to what is actually written here in Greek. It actually reads out of faith into faith. That's the way it would be translated. Out of faith into faith, we'll explain it later. As it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. So, in these two verses, we have the word gospel, we have the word salvation, we have the word believe, we have the word righteousness, and we have the word faith. I didn't see works in there, did you? Did you see works in there at all? I don't see it, because it isn't there, and it isn't in the gospel, and that's critical to understand in the gospel of God. And may God add his blessing to the reading of the gospel and reading of the word of God and the exposition to follow later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee today to thank you for the gospel. What great news, good news, wonderful news this gospel is. The fact that we could have the righteousness of God that guarantees us everlasting life Simply by faith in Jesus Christ is amazing grace, and we thank you for it. We thank you for your salvific plan. We thank you for your precious Son. We thank you for salvation, for justification, for redemption, for propitiation, for sanctification. Thank you for forgiveness. We want to praise you that you are a great God. We want to thank you, Lord, for what we've seen you do. We would praise you this morning that Our dear brother, John Breedveld, is able to be here today. That is miraculous from where he's come from. Thank you for that answer to prayer. We want to continue to pray for those that are in need of your physical healing. We pray you lay your hand on them. We pray for Joyce Anderson, who's in California, to give a kidney to her sister. We pray that you would watch over her and protect her and protect this whole process. We are grateful for the fact that Kay Kavner is here in attendance today, and we thank you for her very positive spirit that she has, knowing that she'll see Bob again. We pray for those who have need here today, Lord. We just pray that you meet them all. And we want to pray for the leaders of this country. Lord, what we would ask you to do is that you would sovereignly work in those leaders of high offices and turn their minds to make decisions that will benefit your people. Lord, you've said in your word that we're to call upon you in times of trouble. Well, we're in times of trouble. 
And we do call upon you for help, and we pray you do help. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are a lot of things in life for which we should be ashamed. How about when we've lost our temper and said things you wish you could take back that you can't? Or how about those times of life when we really didn't put God first? There's something to be ashamed of. Or how about our pride? How about jealousy and envy? Somebody else gets something or has something that somebody else doesn't get, doesn't have. We're jealous of that. How about the meaningless things on which we've spent money? We ought to be ashamed of that. How about our times we've bent the truth? Or how about lust? How about that time you're holding your clicker in your hand? And you click on something, look at something you have no business clicking on. You know it's wrong. You ought to be ashamed of that. And how about times that God has been mocked in this country, taken right out of schools, that now we're being asked to pick up the tab for educators that are God mockers and will pay the price for their education that has nothing to do with truth and God. We ought to be ashamed of that. How about being ashamed of the fact that we call the killing of babies a choice? We don't call it what it is, cold-blooded murder. Boy, there's something to be ashamed about. How about being ashamed of the fact that depending on where you live, what part of the country, what city you're in, your color makes you more important than another color. There is something to be ashamed about. We should be ashamed that people can't even seem to determine what gender they are. There's something really to be ashamed of. And the abominable sins that we see flaunted and promoted and we see paraded. We should be ashamed of the lack of truthful, honest justice. I mean, it's almost like justice is gone. We should be ashamed of that. And how about this? We should be ashamed of the fact that people say all religions are good. They don't care if the religions demean the Lord Jesus Christ, and they don't care if those religions send people to hell, but they say all religions are good. We ought to be ashamed of that, totally ashamed of that. But there's one thing for which we should never be ashamed, and that is preaching and proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel of God is not only the most wonderful message to proclaim, it's the most powerful and most important message to proclaim. But you see, in some churches and in most religions, the gospel is uh, it's an embarrassment. It doesn't elevate man. It doesn't even elevate their works. It doesn't elevate their intellect. And it's certainly not the respectable type of thing you want to hear when you go to church about believing in a guy who dies on a cross. A real threat in our world and a real threat in Paul's world was the threat of being ashamed of that message. People are ashamed and afraid to open their mouths and present that message. People are afraid of what others might think. They're scared. They're intimidated to boldly proclaim the truth. There's only one way to get the righteousness of God. Only one way. 
Now, Rome was a big city. It had lots of people, lots of religion. I mean, you have the major politicians of the world. This is like Washington, D.C. It's the kind of place where people are stimulated by academic and philosophical lectures. I mean, this is a city that features the real sophisticated people, the upper class, the limo types. And if a man like Paul came to that city and would lecture on humanistic subjects, he'd have been well-received. If he'd have come into that city and decided to do a series of lectures on slavery or moral reform, or if he would have decided to come into the city and talk about the importance of religion, he'd have fit in well. Paul wasn't interested in doing that. He said in verse 14, I'm obligated to preach the gospel. He said in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel. And he said in verse 16, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. That's what Paul says. He wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel. When one believes on Jesus Christ and has been saved, he's not ashamed to proclaim it. In fact, he becomes ashamed and angry about things and people that don't proclaim it. See, that's what makes me so stinking mad about lordship salvation. It makes me angry. It makes me angry because the lordship salvation people want to mix their works and their discipleship into this glorious grace message. They want to somehow get your commitments into there, your promises into there, your attempts to do something in there. They want to try to mix that in with the righteousness of God. That does not fit Paul's gospel. It's wrong. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed to proclaim that. I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel of God because it unleashes the power of God and it reveals the righteousness of God that saves sinners. Charles Spurgeon said, when we preach the crucified Christ as the only means of salvation, we have no reason to stammer or stutter or hesitate or apologize. There's nothing in that message that should cause any shame. See, the greatest need that every person in this world has is the need to be right with God that ordained their life. He's the one who ordained their life. And to actually have a relationship with the true God, we have to have his righteousness. That's what it comes down to. To have a relationship with God, we have to have God's righteousness. Our problem is we don't have it. And it's the gospel of God that becomes so crucial and so applicable to us understanding how we get it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there are no two verses in all of the scripture that are of greater importance than these two right here. These two verses are considered to be the theme of the entire book. Martin Luther in the 1500s said, I can do nothing else but preach the gospel. Romanism cannot give you the righteousness of God. Your religion cannot give you the righteousness of God. A denomination cannot give you the righteousness of God. Our works cannot give us the righteousness of God. Our attempts to keep the Old Testament law cannot give us the righteousness of God. It is found in one person, one gospel. It's Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul was not interested in going to Rome to entertain people with his oratorical skills or stimulate them with his academic intellect. And believe you me, this guy had a high academic intellect. 
Paul was not interested in going to Rome to amuse people with religious talk. He was not interested in going to Rome to discuss political or social issues. He was not interested in going to Rome to tell stories, to entertain a crowd. Think of the stories he could have told. He has apostolic stories that were sensational that he could have told. He said, I'm not interested in going to Rome to tell him that. Paul said, I'm going to Rome because I'm going to systematically teach and proclaim the gospel of God. Because I realize it isn't preaching against issues that changes anybody. It's the power of God that changes people, and the power of God lies in the gospel. The power of God lies in the word of God, rightly divided, rightly taught, when it's the gospel. And the gospel of God is the power of God. It has the potential of unleashing the power of God. And Paul said, that's what I'm going to proclaim. That's why I want to go to Rome. I want to go preach it. Now, of course, one logical question that would come to our minds before we actually launch into studying the verses proper is, why would Paul have to defend the fact he's not ashamed to preach the gospel? He'd been proclaiming the good news that sinful man could be made right with a holy God and get the righteousness necessary to go to heaven. So why would Paul say, I'm not ashamed of that message, when it's clear he's not ashamed of that message? He's been preaching and teaching that message and proclaiming that message ever since God gave it to him. And at this point, you're probably 22 to 25 years later. He's been proclaiming that message for 22 to 25 years. So why does he have to say to these Romans, I'm not ashamed of this? Well, the answer lies in five facts from the historical background. First of all, Rome was a big, bustling city. It's filled with, you know, you've got the successful people there. You have the big businesses in Rome. You've got the politicians in Rome. You've got the high-educated people in Rome. It's a lot easier to preach to the country churches than to a mega-setting city that features all these kinds of people. I mean, many big city people, when they think of church, they think about marketing and numbers more than preaching. And Paul said, I'm not interested in going to Rome to get involved in marketing. I'm not ashamed to come there and preach. Secondly, Paul's gospel of grace opposes every religious system of works that's in existence. Paul was proclaiming a message foreign to all religions of the world. See, all the religions of the world will tell you you must do something to be right with God. And here's what you are to do. we got our codes. we got our rules. Follow them. You'll be right with God. Paul said, no. No, it has nothing to do with what you do. It's already been done. Thirdly, his gospel message of grace didn't measure up to the scholarship of the Greeks. I mean, those philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, I mean, those are the high-educated people. Those Greeks were scholarly people, and they expected something just a little more depth than somebody on a cross that could give us the righteousness of God. Paul said, I'm not ashamed to preach that. Then you've got those religious Jews, those rigid, legalistic Jews. They have their Old Testament laws and their Sabbath day codes that they really think is going to somehow make them right with God. And Paul's saying, no, it won't work. And then, everywhere Paul went and preached this message, he didn't seem to be a real success story. In Philippi, when he preached this gospel, he was beaten and thrown in jail. In Thessalonica, when he preached this gospel, he was chased out of town. 
In Berea, when he preached this gospel, he was smuggled out of town. When he went to Athens and preached this gospel, many people laughed at him and his message. When he went to Corinth and preached this gospel, he was called foolish. And when he went to Galatia and preached this gospel, he was stoned and left for dead. And now, he wants to take the same message to the biggest, most prestigious city in the world, and that is Rome. And as word spread about Paul, some of the people are wondering, well, what kind of message is he preaching that's getting him in trouble? What kind of message is he proclaiming? And the message is the gospel of the grace of God. And Paul said, I am not ashamed to preach it. And then you'll notice, if you look at verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for, you'll notice that conjunction for there that is right there in the first couple of lines of Romans 1.16. Paul says, I'm going to introduce you to some reasons why I'm not ashamed to preach it. That four introduces us to reasons. In fact, there are four main reasons that he says, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel because number one, it's the power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. Let's see you trust in anything else that can raise someone from the dead. What other message do you know, what other power can you trust in that can actually raise somebody from the dead? That's the power of the gospel. And most people don't actually realize that the power is in the word of God. That's where it lies. Jeremiah said, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and a hammer that shatters rock? When God's word is accurately preached, it has power to shatter the pride and arrogance of man. When the word of God is carefully and accurately taught, it has the power to soften hearts and cut into souls. Paul said, I'm coming to preach the word of God. I realize that to those that are perishing, it's foolishness. But to those of us who understand what it is, it's the power of God. And the noun power, do not miss, is one that refers to great power and might at a great mighty level. The same word is repeated again in verse 20 to describe the majestic power of God displayed in creation. In fact, we get our English word dynamite from this word, which suggests an awesome, explosive, majestic level of power. Now he said, I want you to understand, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel because it's the gospel that's the power of God, not the Old Testament law. He never says that about the Old Testament law. He never says the Old Testament law is the power of God. He never says our works are the power of God. He never says religion is the power of God. He never says keeping the ordinances is the power of God, like water baptism. He doesn't say that's the power of God. He said the gospel is. The gospel is the power of God. D.L. Moody used to say the gospel is like a lion in a cage. All a preacher has to do is open the door of the cage and get out of the way. <laughs> what is stated by Paul here goes totally against the grain of the way most people think. Because most people think the power of God is going to be unleashed in music and a band. But the power of God is not going to be unleashed in music and a band. 
The power of God is not going to be unleashed by a movie or seminar. The power of God is not going to be unleashed by a sinkspiration or a dinner. The thing that will unleash the power of God is the preaching of the Word of God. The preaching. That's what Paul said, I want to do. I want to go to Rome and preach. Because the power of God is in that. And nothing is going to replace preaching of the Word for unleashing the power of God. Now, most people want to change Most people have a desire to change something about themselves. I mean, most people want to do better in some area of life. The problem is most people don't know where they're going to get the power to do it. So they look for some, I don't know, program, 12-step program to change. They look for some pill, some medication to change them. They look for some counseling situation to change them. But very few realize it's the preaching of the Word of God that can give me the power to change my life. And Paul said, that's what I want to go to Rome and do, preach. Preach the gospel. Because when I do that, it unleashes the power of God. So there's the first reason he wants to go to Rome and preach. He wasn't ashamed because it unleashes the power of God. Secondly, he's not ashamed because it's God's power for salvation. Notice verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel has the power to save any person from sin, death, and hell. It is the power of God that is offered to everyone. And notice that in verse 16. So this is very individual, very personal. Every individual is offered this gospel of God. And it's the power of God to everyone who believes. So every individual is offered the opportunity to believe and be saved. And that's how you're going to be saved. You're not going to be saved any other way but by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, when it comes to any person thinking about salvation, you must also think in terms of the word danger. Because if a person needs to be saved from something, they have to be in some immediate dangerous situation or state or else it doesn't make any sense. I mean, let's suppose that you are at home and you're comfortably sitting in your home tonight and all of a sudden the fire department busts open your front door and they say to you, you need to get out of here right now. You'd probably say, well, why? And let's suppose they say, because someday you could potentially have a fire. You'd say, well, I don't need to be saved right now. What are you talking about? I don't need to be saved right now because there's no fire right now. I'm not in some imminent danger. But that's where the matter of salvation is so different when it comes to saving your soul because people are in imminent danger. They do not realize the dangerous state they're in in the sight of God right now if they don't believe in the Lord. They don't have the righteousness of God if they haven't believed in the Lord. And God views all people as depraved and sinful. They're heading to his wrath. It's aimed straight at every sinner. And every human being is one breath away from this. One heart attack. One coma, one accident away from being in eternity and dropping off into hell. There's imminent danger here. And every human needs to be saved because all are in danger of losing eternity forever. Paul said, I'm ready to come preach that gospel that brings that point out. 
It's the power of God to salvation. What is salvation? Salvation can be understood theologically is the moment you're in a safe, permanent relationship with God. That's what salvation is. It's the moment that you and your soul are in a safe, permanent relationship with the Lord. It's the moment you've been delivered from your condemned sinful status, and you've been delivered now to a new status of being a child of God. And the moment that happens, you no longer have to worry about the threat of eternal condemnation. It's the moment that guarantees that you are a person who the moment you leave your body will go to heaven to be with the Lord. Paul says, I'm not ashamed to preach that. That's the power of God that saves people. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ for salvation has a faith that has been produced by the inspired word of God. I mean, I know this to be true because I experienced it, and many of you have too. But I mean, on June 10th, 1976, when I trusted the Lord, there was nobody around. It was me and a Bible. And I'm sitting there reading that Bible. That Bible is just stirring me that I need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's just gripping me. And Paul will say later in this book, faith comes by hearing the word of God. It's the word of God that produces that kind of response to the offer of grace. And what Paul is actually saying here is, when I go to Rome, I'm going there to preach. I'm not ashamed to do that because I realize that there's dynamic power in proclaiming this message. We don't have the ability to manipulate people or outthink them or outsmart them, but what we can do is present the truth to them, and God uses that truth to save people. And it doesn't matter if one is a Jew or Gentile. They all need the same message. Paul said, I preached that to Jews first. Then I've taken it to the Greeks. I've taken it to the Gentile world. They all need the same message. They all need the same message that it does not matter if it's a boy or girl or man or woman. It's the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ they need to hear. And it's carefully preaching and teaching the word of God that unlocks that for them. The most important thing that we can do is not to try to outthink or outreason some opponent. The most important thing we can do is to accurately proclaim the truth. We're never more powerful than when we're unleashing the truth. And then, as Moody said, just unleash the truth and get out of the way. And by the way, this is so critical because the issue here is the salvation of soul. Christ came to save us from sins. Not to save us from our unhappiness, and not to save us from our loneliness, and not to save us from our unsuccesses, and not to save us from our problems. Although, a relationship with him will clean up a lot of that stuff. But the issue here at stake is how do you get the righteousness of God that will save you from your sins? Paul said, I'm going to Rome, I'm going to proclaim that. I'm not ashamed to proclaim it because it's the power of God, it's the power of God for salvation. And thirdly... I'm not ashamed to proclaim it because it reveals the righteousness of God. Now, I want to point that out to you from verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. I want to point out the righteousness of God, and I'm going to get a little technical in some grammatical talk here, but hopefully we can explain it. When you use the of God, righteousness of God, you use what's called in Greek a genitive construction. Now, Greek is a case language. We don't have that in English. We're a little more sophisticated than we think they were. We don't have a case language. We usually say things and learn to communicate by word order. But in Greek, it's very specific, which is why God probably had the 
New Testament written in this language because it's very precise. So when you use a construction like this, righteousness of God, the of God appears in a genitive case, and the genitive case is a subjective genitive, which means this is God's righteousness. This is God's righteousness. Not yours, not mine, not religion's. This is God's. It's God's righteousness. Now, in a true, accurate presentation of the gospel of God, the righteousness of God will be revealed, and so will the sinfulness of man. In a true, accurate presentation of the gospel, a person is going to look at the righteousness of God, take an honest look at God's righteousness, and then analyze himself and say, Man, I have no chance of hitting that bullseye. I have no chance of measuring up to that status of the righteousness of God. The real true righteousness of God can be given to a sinner according to the gospel that Paul's proclaiming here. In other words, what he's saying is it's possible for a sinner to have an acquittal of sins and have a sinner actually receive the righteousness of God by a judicial declaration that we will see developed later in the book called justification. When we think in terms of the righteousness of God, you need to think in terms of something that's absolutely, totally, majestically righteous and holy and never has failed in any way, shape, or form. I mean, we're talking about the majestic holiness of God and it's a righteousness to which none of us could ever attain. Now, this is critical to understanding the gospel. You see, it's this understanding of this point that causes a boy or girl or man or woman or Jew or Gentile to see himself honestly and say, well, I can't hit that standard. I can't measure up to the standard of the righteousness of God, his righteousness, his subjective genitive righteousness. I can't hit that. And to be right with God, we would have to hit that. We would have to be as righteous as God. Our problem is, we aren't. If we're going to go to heaven and live with God at his home, we have to have his divine standard of righteousness, and we don't have it. We don't have it. Donald Gray Barnhouse used the illustration, and I've used it, and I love it, of an Olympic swimmer. He said, you could take the best-trained Olympic swimmer in the world. Let's take a Michael Phelps. Guy could outswim any of us. He can swim farther and faster than any of us. He said, if you took all of us out into a ship and dropped us in the middle of the Atlantic, and you told Michael Phelps and all the rest of us swim to shore, he's going to drown just like the rest of us. Oh, he may be better than the rest of us, as far as that goes, but he's up against the ocean. He's never going to make it. And that is the way Paul viewed the righteousness of God. We're all drowning because we're all sinners. We have no chance of meriting this righteousness. So we're going to have to trust in something other than ourselves. To have this righteousness of salvation, we cannot look to ourselves. We're going to have to look to someone else. To give us that righteousness, because we don't have it. And that one person we're going to have to look to is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God, and when one believes in him and invites him into his or her life, one is saved and one has peace 
with God. Now, this phrase, righteousness of God, is a critical, grammatical, structured phrase in this book of Romans. It's only used in one other text. I'll take you to that one other text when we end this this morning. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Other than that, this phrase is only used in Romans. It's used some eight times. And in this particular instance, there's no article the before the noun righteousness, which would indicate we're talking here about the character and quality of God's righteousness. In other words, for a person to be saved... For a person to be in a safe relationship with God, he would have to have the character and quality of the righteousness of God, and none of us have that. The gospel being preached is the message that is the power to get that righteousness, which brings us to the fourth reason he wants to preach it. Because it's God's revelation of a faith system. Notice in verse 17, For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I want you to notice, and I point this out again, this is a from faith to faith message. It's not a faith to works message. You see that? I'm just looking at what's here. It's not a works to faith message. It's a faith-to-faith message. Now, what is specifically stated here, and I think this is really critical, is the gospel is a from faith-to-faith, or literally, I'm going to translate it in Greek, out of faith into faith, out of faith into faith message. And what in the world does that mean? And this is the best I can give you on this grammatically. God's gospel has been revealed out of God. It's his righteousness. He's the one who's revealed the faith method of salvation. It comes out of God. Faith message of salvation. In other words, the faith in Jesus Christ method of salvation is God's system of salvation. There is no other system of salvation. It comes out of God. It's his way for a sinner to be saved. God's system. This isn't mine. This isn't yours. This isn't man's. God's system of justification and salvation is a faith system that is the message that stemmed from God and it's offered to man. It's a message that offers man salvation through faith. It's out of God. It offers man to come into faith. That's what it means. And the faith to which Paul's referring here is what a person trusts in or believes in to save themselves from their sins. Do you really want to put the trust in yourself to make you right with a righteous God? Is that what you want to really trust in? Man, that's a big mistake. What do you want to trust in to save you from your sin? What do you want to trust in to save you from hell? Well, here's the deal. It doesn't matter what you want to. This is the out-of-heaven, out-of-God system. It's a faith system. Not a work system, a faith system. The gospel of God is not a message that says all people are safe from hell because Jesus Christ died on the cross. The gospel says people are saved from hell if they believe in my son Jesus Christ who will give them the righteousness that he has and that will enable them to come be with me forever. That is God's system that Paul is going to carefully unlock in this book of Romans. 
The preaching of the word of God is clearly presenting the righteousness of God and it leads one to faith. And he says the just, that is those that will be justified, shall live. That's an indicative verb. It's a fact. One who believes in the Lord, Jesus Christ, shall live. The just shall live by faith. So you can come up with your own scheme if you want to. You can pick a few Old Testament. Pick the Sabbath day. Try that. Paul will blast that later in this book. Pick the Sabbath day. Say, I'm going to keep the, That's going to really, that's going to merit something with God. That'll do it. Boy, my work, my Sabbath day work will do it. Pick a few Old Testament laws. Well, I'll do this. This one's easy to do. Yeah, I may not hit them all, but these are easy to do. God said, you're missing the whole point. My system of salvation has nothing to do with your works. It's an out-of-God faith system that's designed to bring people into faith. And that is the only way to be saved. And Paul said, I am not ashamed to take that message to anyone in the world. I'm not ashamed to go preach that to Rome. Because that is the message of salvation. Now, I wrap this up with the one other passage where the phrase righteousness of God is used. I'd like you to go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Here's the only other book where Paul uses this phrase, the righteousness of God. It's the only other verse where he uses it. And I want you to notice carefully what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See it? Man, that is as clear as it gets. The righteousness of God is not in us, it's not in our works, it's not in our promises, our commitments, our discipleship, our whatever. It's not in that. It's not in our water baptism, our catechism, our denomination. That's not where you get the righteousness of God. You get it in Christ. That is God's system. Not mine, that's his. And Paul said... He made Christ, who knew no sin, in his judicial calculation to be sinned on our behalf, so that when we believe on him, we have the righteousness of God in him. So to be saved, it's not a matter of what you do. It's already been done for you. It's a matter of what you believe. Let's pray. If you've never invited the Lord Jesus Christ into your life. You've seen it as clear as you can see it here today. See, it's the only way of salvation. Faith alone in Christ. That's God's system of righteousness. And if you want him into your life, do what many of us have done years ago. Invite him to come in and take over your life right now. He will give you the righteousness of God. And he will give you a wonderful life. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for the amazing grace that reveals this righteousness of God that we can have in Jesus Christ. What a package you've put together for us, Lord. We don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve it. We know what we are. We know who we are. We're honest about that. And we thank you so much for grace that gives us a relationship with you through him. In Jesus' name, amen.